amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Happy Saturday, bingers. You are not going to want to skip this special bonus episode, even if you've already heard it. I'm joined today by a man who took on the Herculean task of trying to find justice for Kristen Smart. His Your Own Backyard podcast breathed new life into the investigation, and just this week, 25 years after Kristen's disappearance, police have finally made an arrest in the case. I will definitely be working on getting Chris to come back on soon for an update, but in the meantime, here he is, the man of the hour, Mr. Chris Lambert. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming, but have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Dude, what an amazing podcast you made. Thank you. <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> I would, you know, a listener, a few, few listeners had suggested that I checked out your own backyard and, uh, and I gave it a listen and you kind of gave a little bit about your background in, in the beginning that you were, you were trying to make a documentary film and you had a, a background in music. I was flabbergasted by the, the audio production that you put together. I mean, I mean, besides the case stuff that we'll get into just the sound design, like what did you learn all that on the fly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I've been a recording engineer for most of my life. I started recording in my bedroom when I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I've always had four-track, eight-track recorders, and so audio is my world. And so I thought going into this, I don't have the skills to make a big feature production, but right now it seems like a lot of people are able to get pretty far with just audio, so let's see what I can do. Yeah, and you did, I mean, everything from the scoring, the music, and I assume since you're a musician that it was all your music that you were, that you use on the show? Right, yep. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very impressive, very well done. Before we get into the actual case, the Kristen Smart disappearance, um, you tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you, you, you have this background in, in recording, but, uh, mm -hmm. first of all, how old are you? I'm 32. 32, young fella. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed with your beard. Thank you. That's just I actually just trimmed it. It was getting out of control. So this is the trimmed version. <laughs> you know what I, <laughs> I saw when I started researching you and your podcast, I came across, you were featured, was it uh, 48 hours you were featured on? Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I saw you on that show and my first thought was, it, you remind me of the guy from the internship with, uh, uh, have you ever seen that movie? No, oh, I don't think oh, so. You're missing out. It's Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson. <laughs> But there's the okay. for those of you listening that haven't seen Chris, uh, <laughs> the 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 head guy in charge of Google, like you, everything, your mannerisms, your voice, your looks, everything, everything huh. about you, definitely should check that movie. Okay. Out. Are you a comedy fan? I will now. 
Of course. Yeah, yeah. Then you'll you'll love it. So uh, you're born and raised in California? Yeah, I've been in this town my whole life. It's a little town called Orchid. It borders on the southern end of Santa Maria, which I think people know. It's a little suburb area. I went to school here, uh, graduated from school here, went to community college here, and then just stuck around. It sounds like this this sound engineering and recording has been in your life forever. Has that always been your business? Did you have any any career prior to doing this full time or have you always been in this field of work? I mean, I worked like out of high school. I worked jobs to uh, make a little bit of money. I worked at a print shop for a long time. I worked at a coffee shop for a little bit. But this has been the thing in my life since I was 12 or 13. I got an electric guitar. I had had an acoustic guitar for years that I never really figured out how to play. And I thought getting an electric guitar was the secret that I was waiting for. And so I started writing songs in my bedroom. I had one of those cassette tape boombox recorders uh-huh. that had a built-in mic. And I would try to, every week I would try to record one or two new songs. And then when I went back and forth between my mom and dad's house, I would try to impress my mom with the new songs I had made up that week. And then the challenge was next week when I come back, I'm going to try to have two or three more songs and see what she thinks of those. So that became my sole hobby from the time I was 12 till I was 30 was just writing new songs all the time. And then it turned into, can I make a full length album this year by myself, playing all the instruments and then put it out as an actual CD and then start the next one immediately. So I've been doing that since I was a teenager. Is your is your music available anywhere? This music that you've created all these years? Yeah, it's um it's all on like the Apple Store, iTunes, Spotify, and I have a band camp where I have most of my albums on there. I've got 11 full-length albums under my name. Now, is it all instrumental or do you sing too? I sing. It's all uh with vocals and lyrics are a big part for me. I spend a lot of time writing and uh it it never really stays in one genre. Like one album will be just folk and the next album is like electronic pop to see if I can do that. It's like a personal challenge each year to see, am I capable of making an alternative rock album? And then I spend the whole year doing that, and then I put it out, and it's like, now can I make something else? God, that's incredible. And it speaks a lot to the the age of the independent uh, content creator now that that folks are able to do that. And so, and you're literally a one-man band. Right, yeah. And I try just as a challenge to incorporate other people, and every time there's more than two or three people involved, it just never gets off the ground. It never happens. And so scheduling has always been a big motivating factor for me. If I'm in a band and we can't get together a couple times a week, I just kind of, I'd rather be on my own doing it. And that's sort of how I started this podcast was, let's not wait, let's not see if I can get some kind of big grant or some kind of scholarship where they're going to provide me funding or somebody's going to buy this off of me. Let's just try to sit down and make it and actually make it a thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, that kind of attempted collaboration is how Van Halen got kicked out of Van Halen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want you to think about for now that I know how much of a passion music is before we end the segment, think about your favorite, uh, uh, I don't know what the term is, a bar, but I want to hear a lick of you singing before we move on to uh, (laughs) (laughs) your favorite uh, uh, Chris Lambert original. Before we do that, though, so so you're this this musician, this artist, and then 
somehow you you end up doing this incredible podcast that's in the true crime space and you you, you kind of become an investigative journalist almost like how did how did that shift happen how did you get did you decide I want to make a true crime podcast and then you found the case or was the case nagging at you and you thought because I know you said you wanted to make a documentary like how did the impetus of this podcast begin um I think it was just a bunch of things meeting in the middle it was the right time for me um I've wanted to make a documentary for years. I was into film for a long time. I took film class all four years of high school. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend took film class all four years of high school. It's kind of in my DNA. And um, it, it definitely started with this case, though. This is a case that if you're a local to this area, you know her name, and you've probably seen the billboard, and it's something that you might discuss with other people. Hey, whatever happened to Kristen Smart? Mm -hmm. Remember that case? And when I started asking people about it, I started realizing nobody really knows the details of this case as much as we all know her name we're all getting it confused with other local cases like was she the one that this no that was this other case mm -hmm. and so it was frustrating to me that it was local to us it's something where we're pretty sure that she died here on the central coast and that her body was hidden she was buried here uh -huh. and that part to me was the most frustrating is why are we not looking for her why is nobody digging why are there no search parties anymore? Did we just give up on this girl? And so I started trying to take it apart. Can I figure out all the details of what we know happened and try to piece together where it's most likely that she ended up? And that's how this got started. And like you said, I would have liked to make this a film documentary, but I really don't have the skills for that at this point. And I knew it would involve a team of people. And one man band mentality is, can I just sit down and make this by myself? Um, I listened to the first season of Serial, like I think everybody did mm -hmm. when we, uh, when it first came out, it was like a cultural phenomenon. Everybody was talking about it. I remember going to a concert and the guy on stage was like, who thinks Adnan's guilty? Who thinks he's innocent? And, and it was everybody in the room knew what he was talking about. Uh -huh. And we really got sucked into that, my girlfriend and I, and we talked about it for years. We love true crime documentaries. We watched The Staircase all the time. Uh, the Jinx was one of our favorites. And so I already like the structure of a true crime documentary. It's split up into episodes. And I tried to figure out, can the Kristen Smart story be broken up into segments and released as a serial? Right. And, and, and you did a phenomenal job. And along the way, uh, you you seem to you've you've made relations. You've you know made friends and, and developed relationships with her family and people connected to the case. I mean, what what would, were you expecting that? What was that experience like to go from, you know, doing your one band man band thing to your, you know, boots on the ground actively investigating this case and getting to know these people? Yeah, I took my time with it. I think the first 6 months I just kept bringing it up to my family like, I have this idea for this Kristen Smart podcast, but I don't know if I'm really capable of doing this or not. And I I went back and forth, but it never went away. It would just stayed this thing that I wanted to do. And so it was probably six months in before I finally reached out and called the first person who was actually a writer for the Los Angeles Times who had written this vast story about the Kristen Smart case 10 years after it happened. And he went back and interviewed a bunch of people. And so I asked him, can I just talk to you on the phone and sort of see if I can do anything with this. I, do you remember this case? And he was like, oh, yeah, this is one of those cases that's always haunted me. It's uh, 
It's something that I found out that everybody who's ever been involved with this case has never really stopped thinking about it. And it's this anomaly where a lot of cases that people work on eventually get solved or have some kind of resolution to them. The Kristen Smart case didn't. And so FBI agents I've talked to, detectives I've talked to, and uh, newspaper writers, they all are still a little bit haunted by this case because it feels so within reach. We, we think we know who did this, and we think we know the series of events. We just can't put the pieces together. And so reaching out to him was really the first thing that got me going. And he really hyped me up. He got me to believe this is what this case is missing, is somebody like you to bring more attention to it again and just get people talking. And so that was the first step. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think you've gone a long way just if for no- nothing else to bring awareness to the case, because I it was one, and you mentioned this, I think, in the first episode, but I was one of the people that thought I knew this case. And then I quickly mm-hmm. realized when I was listening, I was thinking of the Elizabeth Smart case. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it was I didn't know this case at all. I I I think I remember maybe hearing I was in high school when it happened, you know, when she disappeared, but I realized I was thinking of a completely different case and then I became engrossed in this one ever since. Yeah. Yeah, Elizabeth Smart and then Pamela Smart, there was right. the Pamela Smart case for a while and then Kristen Smart. I think a lot of people have interchanged parts of those and then I know a lot of people who got the details mixed up. With, they thought she was the girl that went to Aruba and went missing. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's Natalie Holloway. And so we know, I, I kind of got the sense early on that nobody really knows enough about this, especially locally. Like, I feel like on the Central Coast and especially in the San Luis Obispo area, we should be familiar with the details of this. But I, I've come to find that even locals who thought they knew the story didn't realize big pieces were missing from it. Have you have you seen? You've obviously, I think, really helped even move the ball forward by just by getting so much public attention. You've recorded some updates since you since you finished the the first season. Do you feel like your work? Do you, do you feel like that sense of accomplishment? Do you feel like your maybe your work is going to get us closer to finally solving the case? Um, it's sort of uh, I'm ambivalent about it at this point because I do feel like what I set out to do was to get people talking again, uh-huh. and that's like inarguably happened. Like everybody's talking about this, but it's beyond the Central Coast now. People are talking about it and emailing me from other countries to tell me how much they enjoyed the podcast. So that's great. But my real goal was where is Kristen's body? Right. And that's still a question mark. And that's the part that keeps me up at night and makes me feel like I've got to do more. There's I mean, I think I've answered a lot of questions that I had at the beginning. Can we figure out what happened here? Can we figure out who this person was? that's alluded to in a police report from 1996. And I've highlighted a lot of those things, and I've answered a lot of those questions. Sometimes it's a huge, in the middle of the night, I wake my girlfriend up, like, yes, I found this thing that I've been looking for for a year now. But we still haven't found Kristen's body, and Kristen's body is the whole thing for me. Even even beyond justice for the perpetrator and, and all of that, which I'm sure could come in time, finding Kristen's body is the big resolution. And so it's hard to celebrate or feel good about what I've done when the one big piece is still not finished. And you're so damn close. I mean, when you came back with with updates and some of the things that were going on, we'll talk about here in a minute. It was was just like, oh, you're right there. It seems like they're just so damn close to, to finally bringing resolve to the case. And that's something that I wasn't sure that a podcast could achieve, but it certainly seems 
Like, there is more movement in this case than there has ever been before. At least that's the impression that I have. And the impression that I think the public has is, whoa, stuff started moving again. And it may have been because what I was doing coincided with what was going on behind the scenes and the timing just worked out well. And I have no way of really knowing, but I get the impression that the podcast was at least a part of that formula. It certainly has been. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, Chris, the next step I want to do is have you, because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that, that probably just had a double take when I mentioned that I thought it was the uh, Elizabeth Smart case, or you mentioned the Pamela Smart case. Um, and realize they probably don't know as much about this case as they might think they do. So can you give us the basic breakdown of the the Kristen Smart case and and where it was at when you when you jumped into it and started making the podcast? Sure. Well, it's been 24 years, and so there's a lot of moving pieces uh, to get through. But to sum it up, Kristen Smart was uh, from Stockton, California. It's up sort of towards the Bay Area, east inland of that. She, in 1995, moved down to the Central Coast to a town called San Luis Obispo, where there's a college called Cal Poly. It's a polytechnic university for people who want to go into architecture or agriculture, science-based things. She wanted to be an architect. She also wanted to be a communications major. She wanted to maybe be on TV, be a reporter of some kind. And she was there for, gosh, I think, eight months or something. At the end of her freshman year in May of 1996, she attended a party on a Friday night. She was walked home by three other students who split off one at a time until she was left with one boy who said he would get her back to her dorm room, and she never made it back to her dorm room. And so the boy that was last seen with her, his name is Paul Flores, and he is to this day the only suspect in the case. He was a person of interest from the time that things got rolling, but the big mistake that was made in this case is that when her roommates tried to report her missing over the weekend, the campus police didn't want to take a report because they thought it was more likely that she was camping or hanging out with other friends. So they didn't take a report for three days. And by the time they did take a report, so many pieces of evidence had been lost and they've never been able to recover them. And so they started interviewing the people she walked home with and realized right off the bat that the last person to see her was not telling the truth about a number of things. He had a black eye, he had scratches on his hands and his knees, he lied about how he got those injuries, and then when he was confronted, he changed his story to something completely different. And they sort of honed in pretty early on on this guy. This guy knows something more than he's telling us. And so they finally ended up getting the sheriff's department involved a month after Kristen went missing. The first thing the sheriff's department did was brought in a team to search Cal Poly, they brought in cadaver dogs, and four separate cadaver dogs alerted to the dorm room of Paul Flores. They alerted to his mattress, 
his wastebasket, and the telephone in his room for the specific scent of human decomposition, which means that he was in contact with a dead person sometime recently, enough that the dogs could smell it. And then that's pretty much where things stopped. It, they pursued him over the years, he moved to Southern California, and then the Smart family has been pushing law enforcement for 24 years now to please wrap this case up. We know who did it, we know what's going on here, we just need him to be pressed. He lawyered up, he started taking the Fifth Amendment to any questions they would ask, he stopped cooperating with investigators in 1997, and has not answered questions since. And so, by the time I got involved in 2018, when I first started researching this, it felt like kind of a forgotten case. There was one big thing that happened in 2016, where the Sheriff's Department announced that they were digging on the Cal Poly campus because they believed it was possible that she was buried on the hillside directly behind the dorm buildings. And they dug for four days, I think. They moved hundreds of pounds of dirt and didn't find her or any evidence that she had been there. And so in 2018, when I started making this, the frustration there was, what happened two years ago and why has the public not been told whether or not there was anything substantial found there? And that was one of the... uh catalyst for wanting to do this is I feel like this is getting swept under the rug again. And maybe it's not. Maybe behind the scenes they're doing a ton of stuff, but the public gets the impression that we've all stopped talking about this again. And that's pretty much where it was at. It seems like there's a lot of resistance coming from the sheriff's department where at any time the the family has requested documents or case material be be shared with them. The police always claim it's an active and in, in ongoing investigation. But it doesn't seem that way. It, 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 it really, you know, there's another case that we're going to um, that, that we're going to have featured here. It might have been last week or it might be next week. But we're talking about the we're going to be talking about the Delphi uh, murder case, Abby and Libby here in, in Delphi, Indiana. And, and that's a case where it's a similar situation where they say it's active and ongoing. But it clearly is. You can see that, that there, there's there's things happening where you can see that they're working on this. Uh, whereas this one, it doesn't seem that way to me. I don't know how it seems to you, but it seems to me like nothing's happening. Right now, I have a fairly good relationship with the current detectives working on this case. Mm -hmm. And every few weeks I call them and I'm like, what's going on and what can I do? Like, I'll bring new pieces to them. Have you gotten this tip before? Because I keep getting this emailed to me. And I really believe that the current administration is trying their hardest to close this now. Absolutely, the first two sheriffs' administrations, two sheriffs have retired without resolving this case before the third sheriff that we're on now. And absolutely, without question, there was not enough being done. You can say they were working, but there was not enough being done. There was a a court case where the smarts were trying to get all of the investigative documents turned over to them so they could just move forward with a wrongful death suit against Paul Flores right. instead of waiting for justice from the sheriff's department. And they were denied access to those, like you said, because it's an ongoing and active investigation. But there was a point where the judge asked the lead detective on the case, how many hours are you dedicating to the Kristen Smart case? And he said three to four hours. And they said a day, and he said a month. And so three to four hours a month of work, I guess, is enough to keep this an open investigation and not turn over documents to the smart family. 
which I think is awful. But I do think the current administration is really moving. Like, I do think they're doing good work right now. Well, well that's, that's great to hear. Because, you know, you, you mentioned you know, Paul Flores taking the fifth. One of the things that was frustrating to listen to was they did bring the, the wrongful death suit against him. And I think part of the reason for that was it gave them a reason to depose Paul Flores, the, the lead suspect. And then he sat through, and it, through a civil deposition and took the fifth and never answered a single question the entire yeah, time. 27 times in a row he took the Fifth Amendment in that case. He would only confirm that his name is Paul. Ruben Flores. And from that point on, he wouldn't answer where he worked in high school, what his dad's name is, what his aunt's name is, whether he's ever cooked hamburgers, like no questions, which reasonably will not lead to incriminating himself. And I think that's the whole point of the Fifth Amendment is that you can't be forced to incriminate yourself by answering questions. Right. So any question that doesn't have a tendency to incriminate a suspect, they shouldn't be able to take the fifth on. And that's where the Smart family is going, why can't somebody force him to talk? If anybody who killed somebody could just take the fifth and not answer a question ever, they would all be free. And so what's special in this case? Right. Yeah. And it's the tricky part is they don't. Well, it's not even that I was going to say they don't have forensics to, you know, to back up their case or, or witnesses. But. They do. That's you know. They, you know. I, I guess it's forensics is 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 a bit of a stretch, but like the cadaver dogs, you know, signaling in his his room. And I was going to ask you about that. So, in listening to the podcast, I had in my mind that that the idea was that because the cadaver dogs uh, indicated in that room that she was killed there and she was kept there. Do you know? Because I know you you dealt directly with some of these um, dog handlers. Do you know like? Those scents, would that have to mean that she was dead and decomposing in that room? Or is there such a thing as like transfer where if he was around her dead body somewhere else and then went into the room that they would they would indicate there? Yeah, there is transfer that can happen. The dog's noses are really sensitive and they only alerted to the corner of his mattress specifically, which some people seem to think is more likely that he was just in contact with her elsewhere and brought the scent back to his room, but not her body. But I talked to at least one cadaver dog handler who works for Cardo, which is the big California Rescue Dog Association. And his theory is that with the strength of those four cadaver dog alerts, that there's no way that it was just by transfer, that she absolutely had to have been in that dorm room and for a while in order to have that strong of a reaction. Because I guess the way in their report they describe the dog's reaction is they almost broke their necks trying to pull off the leash to get into this room. And so they were walked through all of these different dorm buildings, and it was just this one-bedroom door they alerted to. And once the door was open, straight to the mattress, I think the fourth cadaver dog, they actually removed the mattress before they brought that dog in, and he still alerted to the spot where the mattress had been. And so it was a strong scent. And so I guess it depends on who you talk to, but it doesn't seem like there's any consensus on whether or not she died in the room or elsewhere. But and I didn't realize that either. I was thinking they brought the cadaver dog specifically to check his room, but so but but they had the dogs check throughout the dorm all the rooms? Yeah, they had the dogs check the entire campus and go through all of the dorm buildings independently. And the dorm buildings have I think three separate floors mm-hmm. with 20 bedrooms on each floor and it was only the one bedroom that they alerted to. And also once that happened, 
there's the possibility that maybe a student died there in the past. or So they had to go through records to make sure, did anybody die in this room in the past? And there was no record of that. And so the chances of them alerting to the room of the last person to see Kristen Smart alive are pretty slim, I think. Yeah, I mean... Th- that's too much of a of a coincidence that there are witnesses that say they saw him with her last. As you said, he's got these injuries. He's lying uh, about how he got them and when he got them. And the dog searched the entire campus, and the only place they indicate human remains is in his dorm room. Did did, did they search his room or or take any samples or anything for to try to find any kind of forensics DNA or anything like that that might have connected him to Kristen? They did, but that's another frustrating part about this case is that they waited too long to do it. I think by the time they went to his room, it had been, by the time the cadaver dogs alerted, it had been a full month since she went missing. But it had been three weeks before they even got the permission to go into his room. He had moved out by that point. The quarter had ended. He had gone home, taken all of his bed sheets, clothes, everything out of there. Mm -hmm. And the Cal Poly campus custodians had cleaned the room. So the room had been cleaned out, bleached, uh, the carpet was cleaned. Every bit of forensic material uh, potentially wiped out by Cal Poly's own staff. And so that's the frustrating part is that they did, I believe, take fibers and swabs and things like that, but it was too late. Yeah, It it sounds like if the police had taken her disappearance seriously from the get-go, that there was probably if if she was indeed if he is indeed the culprit and she was indeed killed or stored in that room, there had to have been a ton of forensic evidence that that would have been there had they taken it seriously from the beginning. Right, and that's part of what I've tried to highlight in my last few episodes is how much time was lost between when she was actually last seen and when they decided to finally take a missing persons report, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that her roommates and dorm mates were calling over and over again. They called the city police, who referred them back to the campus police, who referred them to the city police. Nobody wanted to take a report. And even once they took it seriously, they just called Kristen's parents and said, is she there with you? Don't panic. She's probably just off with friends or camping. And so they weren't taking it seriously even once the missing person report was filed. And Part of researching for this is that I had to go back through newspaper archives, and I wanted any mention of Kristen Smart. I've got printed, I've got over here, I've got like a five-inch spine binder that's got every article that's ever mentioned Kristen Smart or Paul Flores or anything related, and I put them all in chronological order, and I read it several times through. And I've got one interview from June 20th, so that's almost a full month after Kristen went missing, and it's several weeks after they file the missing persons report where the lead Cal Poly campus police officer is saying, we don't see any evidence that a crime took place here. So even weeks later, once they're taking it seriously, they were still defending themselves and saying, it doesn't look like anything serious went on here. And something serious absolutely happened. And Kristen has never surfaced. And the sheriff's department, by the time they inherited this case, there was so many missteps that they've had a hard time going back and and filling all those gaps in it's it's so frustrating and it's almost like it just it snowballs like once they've made the mistakes now they don't want to admit they've made the mistake so they don't want to do the work that needs to be done because that highlights more of how the the mistakes they made because there as you know as the investigation goes on we find out there and some of the people that 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 you you spoke to the one gentleman i think he was living in australia now 
that right. you know as far, as far as you know the evidence that's building against this this Paul Flores. Can you share a little bit about that? Like what the, what this guy said, and, and was it that the police had spoken to him but never did anything with it, or they never did speak to him? They did speak to him, but it was a month after Kristen had disappeared. There was an Australian exchange student who was attending Cal Poly at the time. He was in his 30s. He was older than most of the other students there. He was riding his bike home after 2 a.m., which is the time when Kristen was walked towards her dorm. Mm -hmm. And at the same street corner that Kristen disappeared from, just about a tenth of a mile up, he rode his bike past a building that had a light on at 2 a.m. and saw a boy and a girl in the middle of a physical struggle of some kind. With their arms over their head, wrists locked together like she was trying to get away from him. And he didn't really think much of it until he had already biked part of the way home and didn't turn around. And so the sheriff's department had to contact the Australian consulate, get him to come into a police department there, take a sworn statement, and they had to go back and forth that way for a while. They finally dismissed his story because they thought the dorm building that he was describing seeing this boy and girl in was not where Kristen died because at the time they were thinking Kristen must have died in Paul's dorm room or the cadaver dogs wouldn't have alerted there. But as we just spoke about, there could have been transfer and she could have died elsewhere. And even if she did die in his dorm room, that doesn't mean they weren't physically struggling somewhere else first and ended up back at his dorm room once she was dead or before she was dead. So From everything I've seen, there's no good reason to excuse this guy's story. And he describes the girl as being close to six feet tall. Kristen was six foot one, and the boy is being significantly shorter than him. Uh, Paul Flores was five nine. And so I think the likelihood that he saw them is much stronger than that he saw a random couple in the middle of a struggle at the same street corner around the same time in the middle of the night and the. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Yeah, and there's just too many coincidences. And and also, wasn't the campus relatively empty at that time? Yeah, it was Memorial Day weekend, and so most people had gone home. Everybody I talked to said the campus was so dead that night. It was just super quiet. The bicyclist even says from biking all the way across campus, out of the campus, and through part of San Luis Obispo, he didn't see a single other person besides this man and woman in the middle of a struggle. So it was a completely empty campus over that entire weekend which which may explain what you know and i I guess i should ask you it it seems to be but then there's there's maybe some indicators that somewhere else but it seems to be the most likely place where Kristen's body is located is is buried maybe under a garage at paul flores's mom's house do you believe that's most likely place or do you have other theories i got many theories um it's it's really hard to narrow down because i do think that They've taken so long, and it's been so much time, and so much attention was poured into his mom's backyard for a while there, that I think anybody intelligent enough would have relocated her by now, and it would Mm -hmm. be fairly easy to do, because not long after Kristen went missing, 
the neighbors of his mom and dad had separated. His mom was living in her old rental house, which she still occupies to this day. And a couple days after Kristen went missing, they cut out big pieces of concrete, like rectangles of concrete, and filled it in with soil to make planter boxes. And the timing of that just feels so... It, it, it feels connected. Right. And I think most people believe that's the case. And so I don't necessarily think that Kristen's body was under the concrete as much as it could have been in the soil. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was never her body. Maybe they just got rid of her belongings. And I did interview... She had rented that house out to a tenant later that year. Paul Flores' mother did. And um, the tenant that I interviewed said that the entire time they lived there, there was a beeping, like an alarm beeping coming from the backyard. Oh, yeah, that was and the she would look out her window. Creepiest part about that, yeah. Right. And she would go out there with sticks and try to dig to see where the beeping was coming from because it was driving her crazy. And it would go off at 4.20 a.m. every morning. And... Eventually, it stopped, which she took to mean the battery must have died, which I took to mean that it must have been placed there fairly recently if the battery was still alive and then eventually died. And when I interviewed Kristen's mom just about Kristen's history, what was Kristen's time like at Cal Poly, she had mentioned in passing that Kristen worked the 5 a.m. lifeguard shift mm -hmm. and had to wake up at 4.30 every morning in order to get to the shift. She hated her job, didn't want to get up that early, and eventually quit because of that. But the, the timing of those two things, the alarm going off at 4.20 and knowing that Kristen had a 5 a.m. lifeguard shift seemed like a strong connection to me and very eerie in hindsight. And the tenant of the house never knew anything about that. And Kristen's mom never knew anything about the watch beeping. And so those were brought together for the first time. Yeah, that was, I, they said, what, well, they would, every morning they'd hear it and then they'd, they were going out at around 4.20 to listen for it to beep so they could try to figure out where it was coming from in the dirt. It's just the coincidences just keep mounting and mounting and mounting up. And then, the, you know, and, and then the frustrations do too, because you had, you know, at one point police did obtain a warrant to, to dig at Flores' mother's house. And then they show up and they, they end up not digging. They're just using like, like radar and right. decide not to dig up the concrete. But then they go to the Cal Poly campus and start digging up concrete and, and shit there in this huge giant production and all i was thinking the whole time is how the hell would he have buried and if my understanding was right they're thinking like buried like in or under concrete there like how would he have done that in the middle of the damn campus it it, it never made sense to me yeah right yeah a lot of people who attended cal poly at the time that she went missing have emailed me since i started this to say we all talked about this like at the time that it happened the contemporary overwhelming theory was that she was buried under the foundation of the Performing Arts Center. Uh -huh. So the Performing Arts Center is a, just a huge building on the Cal Poly campus where they have concerts and stuff. And it was in construction during the time that Kristen went missing. And so everybody thought that's where she was. And I, my first thought was that's not a place that you would want to conceal a body. You would think that the construction crew would show up the next morning and go, there's a girl in here. Right. But it, it seems... But the more that I looked into it and the more that I went through old newspapers and stuff, it looks like the foundation was already set by the end of May 1996 because they had their first concert in June. Right. And so the likelihood that there was still wet concrete or exposed foundation at that point seems really slim to me. But I still get about once a month, I still get an email saying, 
I think she's buried underneath the Performing Arts Center, and they should check that out. Uh, I just think that's such a ridiculous place to conceal her. And I can't say he didn't, because we haven't located her. Right. So it's sure a possibility still. But it seems like one of the far outside ones. And it just rings too many bells for me of those late 1990s campus urban legends that we've all heard. Anytime Mm -hmm. something happened in the late 90s, this urban legend about a babysitter, about spiders laying eggs in your brain kind of thing, that feels very of the time that this girl would have been buried underneath the floor and her ghost is haunting the Performing Arts Center now. Right, yeah. And and there's there's several different theories. And, And regarding his mother's backyard and where the garage is, you know, that's all... Also to note there, there's been the 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 radar and uh, what was the term again they use for the ground pen ground penetrating radar? Yeah, the GPR yeah. where they've seen some anomalies under the concrete. They've had cadaver dogs that have indicated in that in that backyard, and then you even had somebody come take soil samples, right? Or the the Smart family had somebody take soil samples from just outside of that yard that also indicated decomposing human flesh. Right. So there, yes. there's a lot of reasons to believe that at least that her body at least was there at one point, and then you have the right. the was it a tip about his dad's avocado grove that or something there were there were there was there was some reason to believe that maybe her body had been moved out there, yeah, or had started out there. We're really not sure, but um, there's an avocado grove, a small avocado grove on the dad's property, and somebody had told me that they had worked with Susan Flores at the time, and that she had told them. Um, the police are so stupid, they never even looked in our avocado grove. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say. But then I had also interviewed an ex-girlfriend of Paul Flores who had lived with him for a period of time. He had taken her home to visit his parents. And when they were on his dad's property, she started walking towards the avocado grove to pick avocados. And they started yelling, don't go over there. Don't go in the avocado grove. And so there were a number of things that pointed to that as well. And that has since been torn down and paved over with another house. and so. So much time passes that all of these places that could have been very important at one time are getting harder and harder to search because they're being built over. Right. And unfortunately, Paul Flores has done something that I wish some of the wrongfully convicted people that we work with would have done. And in this case, it's very frustrating in the fact that he's just not talking. And I think right. and it seems like he's realized that as long as he doesn't say anything, then they can never really catch him. I mean, because there, there's so much circumstantial evidence surrounding him, including a lot of conversations you have. And we're, and we're, we're getting up to where we're going to wrap this up. So I'll let, uh, direct people to the podcast to listen. But he's got a history uh, that, that, that certainly would indicate that he could do something like this. Yeah. Going back to elementary school, I've talked to people who had bad encounters with Paul Flores all through high school, through college, and up to this very day. I've talked to people who within the last couple of years have worked with Paul Flores or come across Paul Flores at a bar or something and had very scary experiences with him, mostly women. Um, he doesn't seem to respect women's boundaries. He seems to think that that he's got a shot with any woman he meets and, and sure attempts to get alone with them. Um, I talked to one woman that he worked with for a period of time who drove him home because he was drinking and he wouldn't get out of the car until she agreed to kiss him. And then he carried her up his stairs and carried her into his apartment, locked the door behind them until she threatened to scream and finally let her go. But I imagine he's doing things like that regularly to this day. Yeah, I'm sure if if you were able to come, I mean, 
pretty much everyone you came in contact that knew him gave you the same kind of type of stories about him. And those were just the yeah. people you, you've spoken to. So, you know, the, your, your investigation was great. The podcast production was beyond phenomenal. I mean, I, I, was, I was literally in awe when I listened to how well you did putting that together and everything, again, from the music to the content to the interviews, the sound design, everything was fantastic. I definitely recommend everybody go check out your own backyard. And you've done a couple update episodes. Are you still actively working? Do you, do you foresee more updates coming from this case? Yeah, definitely. Um, I spent most of this year working on the episode that I just put out Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's an update there. And I expect probably more updates to come. I never stop working on this. And so I'm always looking into some aspect that feels like could potentially lead to a big discovery of some kind. So I expect there will be more, but there's no timeline and I'm not putting them out regularly. So at this point, it wrapped up with the six episodes, mm -hmm. and then I put out episodes seven and eight this year as updates, and there will probably be more updates in the future. Do you have any plans to uh, for a second season or a different case or a different project, anything in the works? No, not specifically. I really didn't set out to make a true crime podcast. It just kind of worked out that way, and I've gotten a number of requests. Um there are local cases, though, that I am trying to help families because there are things that I can do to help other local families get some resolution in their cases. But I don't necessarily know if it will make it into podcast form yet. And so right now, it's just my big focus is where is Kristen Smart's body? And is Paul Flores ever going to be charged with anything? Those are the two focuses for right now. And then we'll see what comes next. That's great. And I applaud you for everything you've done. You're doing great work, and looking forward to any follow-up episodes that come along the way. Thank you, and thanks for thanks for talking. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. 
Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.